it's my privilege and to uh, introduce our speaker this morning, who is um, Rich Checha. And uh, I'm going to give you the spelling of his last name. It's T-R-C-A. What's wrong with that? I don't know. There seems like there's some vowels missing or something. I'm not quite sure. Um, but uh, he, Richard is the area leader, Europe area leader for the Reach Global. And uh, he normally lives in Prague. Uh, he is in charge of developing, empowering, and releasing leaders in Europe, uh, Christian leaders, and developing kingdom networks, and he can tell you more about what he does. Um, but uh, I, I think it's going to be a, a delightful time to, to uh, learn from him and uh, encourage you to, uh, to speak with uh, Rich and his wife Susan uh, afterwards. They have a little table set up in the back if you want to learn more about their ministry. So, uh, Rich, come on up. Thank you. Thanks, Cabot. Good morning. Good morning. I enjoy being with folks like you. I am grateful for your courage. Uh, this has been a church plant, Cabot, for about 10 years. Yeah. Uh, I appreciate your courage. I appreciate your adventure, your willingness to do and to go where God calls you. Uh, as many of you know, church planning is not an easy business. It is not always comfortable and puts you in a lot of uncomfortable situations. And so I just like hanging out with people like you. I've been involved with church planning in, in Iowa for a number of years, and then we moved to uh, Europe in 1994 to be working with free church missionaries and working with our national partners in different countries in Europe. And uh, uh, my speaking and, and church plants are usually, I mean, the mega churches there in Europe are about a 90 to 100. Uh, okay, and so a normal Sunday gathering is about 45, and that's just a great group of people. Uh, but people committed to making disciples, people committed to planning churches, people committed to sharing their lives with people around you. So thank you for being a part of this community. I'm grateful, and it's a privilege for me to, to be here. Um, yeah, my name is Czech, and so we've been living in Czech Republic for the last 25 years, uh, T-R-C-A is the correct spelling. Uh, my wife, well, before she got married, one of her friends asked her, isn't that missing some vowels or something? Or maybe you need to go on the Wheel of Fortune and get a vowel there? Or, you know, how's that going to work out for you? And so she was willing to pay the price and take on a name. Um, let me tell you a little bit about what it's like to grow up, to live in Europe. Um, we speak a different language. Mluvíme tam česky. Azia mluví po polsku, ale my mluvíme hlavně česky. So we speak Czech, as I said, Azia uh, speaks Polish. Maybe you, some of you speak different languages. There's some differences there in, uh, in language, in culture. But there's a lot of things that are similar as well. Um, so... We moved there in 1994. We moved there with two small children. The Lord has given us three more children. Uh, they're all out of the house now. <sighs> in college, so that still means some financial responsibility. Uh, two of them are in college. Two of them are still living in Europe, but three have, uh, they're doing college or they're living here in the United States. Uh, but for the most part, have grown up in the Czech Republic, which has been a great place to, to live. 
Uh, I mean, where else can you learn to uh, shoot an AK-47 and wear communist hats, right? Uh, where else can you, uh, as parents, it's an advantage that you're not teaching your kids how to drive when they're 14 or 15 because they don't get their licenses until they're 18, right? Uh, and so public transportation, learning how to take public transportation is important. Uh, more on the serious side, where else do you get an opportunity to meet German and Hungarian and Czech uh, disciples, followers of Jesus who just want to live for Jesus, who want to start communities to work with church planters? Uh, where else do you have an opportunity to, to go to a, in, our, in our church plant where there's a, a, a city or a part of Prague that's about 30,000 people and there is no evangelical witness? And so the simple act of doing a children's program and, and handing out treats and, and water and doing games and, and face painting and stuff, uh, telling stories about who Jesus is to kids and families who have never heard uh, a story about Jesus before, that's, that's awesome. We love doing that. We love being there. We love where God has put us. Uh, there's a, another side to... Uh, to religion in Europe, that's, that's not quite so easy. Uh, here's a picture of a church that uh, many years ago, I'm sure, was a gathering place for many people to come and to, uh, to worship God uh, that is now just left in, in shambles because the, the people have moved away. The interest in religion in Christianity has, is very much on the, on the wane uh, Churches today in the center of uh, many European cities are often used as places where they do concerts or where they do art festivals uh, because no one necessarily would attend church there. Many cities in Europe are having to figure out, we have this huge cathedral and it belongs now to the, to the city and what do we do with it? It's just becoming dilapidated. Do we tear it down? Well, or turn it into a skate park. Uh, and so the influence of, of Christianity uh, has been waning since the time of people like John Wycliffe or Jan Hus or Martin Luther or John Calvin. That was, that was really the, the heyday of, of a time where Christianity and truth was the center of life and religion, and yet today it's quickly becoming the opposite in uh, in fact, the, the fastest growing religion in Europe is not Islam, it's not Buddhism, it's unbelief. Somebody who says that they are unbelief, uh, and so in the last Czech census, uh, when you could check if you're a Christian or Buddhist or Muslim or just unbelief, 70% of the people there checked unbelief. Uh, from the time of 1900, when there was about 1.7 million people who would claim to be unbelievers, today it's grown to about 130 million people today in Europe. But that's not staying just in Europe. That's moving into other continents as well. Uh, now, I started off my, why, what I was saying uh, in saying that we have many differences in Europe than here in the U.S., but we have many similarities. And so... What I'm talking about probably isn't foreign or these aren't things that are, are not uncommon to you as well. Here's an article from a Czech newspaper that says, Czechs would rather believe the media than the church. And so the institutions that were found in Czech during this research 
that were most reliable were the institutions of government, were the institutions of the army, and of the media. And the church was a far last place of the place that people would go to for trust because people are losing trust in those institutions. That is hard to see, but if you were to see that, you would see that the number or percentage of people who pray and who never pray uh, on the farthest left is Malaysia, where about 70%, 76% would, would say that they pray. On the far right is Czech Republic, where only about 8%. America is about right in the center with about 52% of the people who would claim that they pray every day. Uh, just uh, some ideas of what it's like of, of growing up or some demo demographics. Less than 2% of Europeans would actively, actively follow Jesus. Only half of 1% in the Czech Republic. One third of the children in Europe are born not between a, a husband and a wife, but, but rather between somebody who's in a, in a single, in a single relationship. Top three countries in the world for high rates of suicide are found in Europe. And the fastest growing religion in European uh, nation is unbelief. A recent uh, article in a British newspaper tried to put down the anxiety of, of people and to, and to uh, just kind of give them some calm and basically say, you know what, we're not sure if there is a God, so just stop worrying about it. And now you can start enjoying your life. What does this perspective leave us with? What does that perspective leave you with? Where, as I said, I'm not, too, I'm not doubting that there are many of you who will go into the workplace tomorrow. You'll be in schools where, you know, people and religion, there isn't a real big trust factor there. Uh, people and, and wanting to know about Jesus, um, you're not finding them necessarily just coming before and saying, hey, I really want to know about, about Scripture, about the Bible. Um, what does that leave us? What kind of perspective, what kind of feelings does that give us? Uh, I met someone here this morning and he asked, uh, so where you've been? I said, I've been in Europe. And he said, wow, that is a hard place to minister. Uh, hard soil, uh, people not much interested and my response was, yes, that's true, but I'm not sure that there's a lot of difference between where we're living in Europe and, and many of our contexts here in, in America. Ed Stetzer, in some of his writings, talks about the growth of, of unbelief in America, where people uh, today can no longer assume that they have a common value system, or Christians can no longer assume that they have a common value system with the people around them, that the idea of of marriage, the idea of uh, children, the idea of sexual orientation are not common topics that we have in common with, with much of our society today. Uh, Ellen Noble has talked about the rise of, of secularism. Secularism isn't the, the big bad boogeyman that he talks about, but rather it's what happens when a country or when a nation just becomes more modern. It means that people separate, they secularize from the religious 
and the, and the profane, or what is non-religious, which is a natural occurrence. So that in one of his books, uh, he talks about an illustration where he was uh, talking about the truth that Jesus is in the, and, the, and, the, and the new life and the, uh, and the new purpose in life that, that Jesus brings into his life, sitting across from a coffee table from a guy who's talking about CrossFit. And CrossFit for him, it says, he said, you know, CrossFit has changed my life. It's brought me into a new community. I find real purpose, and there's been transformation inside of me because of CrossFit. And here he realized you have two competing truths, CrossFit and Jesus, which in this gentleman's mind was of equal value. In fact, as, as Alan left this conversation, he was thinking, boy, I really hope that I can get a chance to, to talk further uh, about Christ with this man. But he realized that this man was probably walking away and saying, wow, I really wish Alan would, would, would be able to listen more to my, you know, my, my, uh, what I'm talking about with CrossFit, and he'd get in shape because he's looking a little you know, round around the middle because it would really change his life. Secularism raises the value of truth to the same level of the truth that we thought was uh, the most important truth. That's here in America as much as it is in Europe. What perspective does that leave us with? It, it leaves us with a, what I might call kind of a, a tired or worn out perspective. Um, the perspective that I take on often then focuses me upon how I see people around me, how I respond to people around me. We're going to look at a passage this morning from John 4 in which Jesus is going with his disciples and he is, uh, he's walking with them and uh, Jesus gives to them a telescopic view of the world around them. The difference between a microscope, telescope, I bet I've got some grade schoolers here who could tell me that difference. Uh, microscope is, is looking at the details, it's looking at the fine points. A telescope is looking at a big picture. It takes into consideration all those fine points, and yet a telescope sees the whole picture. My concern is that and, I, and I've realized this in my own life, that's why I like to return to this passage for myself just in my daily reading, is to be renewed with the perspective that Jesus has versus a perspective that I'm almost, that I'm almost always pushed into, which is much more of a, a microscopic view. So would you, if you, can, if you want to follow along with your Bibles, if you just want to read the text with me, I want to compare two views of uh, the disciples' view and then the view of Jesus that he has on the world around him, on the harvest that's around him. Uh, these two views, as I said, could be described as a microscopic view or as a telescopic view, focusing upon what's right in front of us or being able to have a broader perspective by taking a few steps back. The first view is from the disciples' view, and it says, uh, I'll just read in the, in the first part of uh, John chapter 4. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, 
although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and he departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. We'll come back to that. That's important. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. And Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, weird as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour, about noon, and his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Now let me come back to that, that verse uh, in verse 2 where it says, uh, I'm sorry, verse 3, if I can see that here. And he had to pass through Samaria, verse 4. Those words for, and he had to pass through, uh, is, is an important context because John often uses, in the rest of the book of John, you can see where he uses those words, and he had to do this. All right, um, this is, uh, if you look at where Judea is in the south, and Jesus was headed to Galilee, which was in the north, most, most devout Jews, uh, because they didn't like the Samaritans, because the Samaritans were, were almost like the black sheep, a little bit of the Jewish clan, uh, during the time of the kings, the Samaritans had gone and begun worshiping in a different place. And so for the history since that time, since the early, from the 700 years before Christ, Samaritans were considered, well, you kind of belong to us, but, but you're really not a part of us because you started worship in this, in this whole new place. And so that area of Samaria took up a, a place between Judea to the south and Galilee to the north. And most devout Jews did not want to have any contact with Samaritans. And so what they would do if they were going from the south to the north, they would go across the Jordan, up along Samaria, cross the Jordan, and then go into Galilee because they didn't want to connect with Samaritans. And yet, John says that Jesus had to go through Samaria. Now, what that is reflecting is uh, John's talking about or trying to tell us, the reader, that there was a sovereign, God-inspired direction that Jesus sensed and Jesus choosing to do that. That had to is a bringing together of God's sovereign leading of Jesus as well as Jesus deciding, this is what we need to do. And so he went through Samaria. And as you can see from the rest of the text for his disciples, it was a wearisome jury. Uh, it was an unwelcome environment. As the disciples went there, they realized they were going to be interacting with Samaritans and they didn't want to get too close to them. Uh, and yet, Jesus said, we have to go through this place. Uh, it was a time of weariness. Also part of the disciples' view was that uh, uh, in the text that, that continues, it says, just then his disciples came back and they marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, what do you seek? Or, or why are you talking with her? And meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, has anyone brought him something to eat? Again, coming back to this microscopic view of the disciples. They, there was this woman talking with Jesus and and yet, she wasn't important enough to really know or get to know her. And they just kind of brushed her to the side because they needed to get food. They needed to, to hang, you know, get the most important things done of the day. 
Is that, as I'm describing this, does this just kind of make you a little bit tired or, or anxious? Uh, you may be sitting here thinking, I've got all this stuff that I need to do this week. Uh, I have a lot of, uh, whether that's with children or family or in my job place, New Year, I've got, a, uh, I've got some, uh, whether you're an accountant, whether you're working with a company that's having to do year-end finalization, you've got a lot of things to do. Uh, there's a lot of things that take our energy. And folks, I'm right there. There is so much that takes my view and wants me to focus so much just on the details of right ahead of me, so that's what I'm doing. I'm just kind of taking one step at a time. It's natural. It happens. Please hear me. I'm not not saying we shouldn't do that. I'm just saying that's what naturally happens to us. That's what happened to the disciples. And that's why Jesus had to go through Samaria. He had to go through them so that he could give them a different perspective on the people around them. I want to talk about three perspectives that Jesus brings. He talks about uh, a wide harvest. He talks about a work of partnership. And Jesus talks about a wide gospel influence. Jesus, first of all, causes the disciples to realize there is gospel fruit to be harvested right around you. Verse 28, so the woman left her water jar and went away into the town and said to the people, come and see a man who told me all that I have ever did. Can this be the Christ? So they went out from the town and they were coming to Jesus. And Jesus said, do not say there are yet four months when comes the harvest. Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Jesus is saying to his disciples, guys, you don't have to look far. The harvest is right around you. It's ripe. It's right there in front of you. This insignificant woman that you just overlooked is part of that harvest. Part of that harvest often comes with with people that we least suspect would be interested uh, in knowing about Christ. Um, It wasn't... Too long ago, I was on vacation with my family, and uh, my sons and I were on vacation, but we wanted to get a haircut, and so we go into this haircutting place, and we just decided to, to wait for a haircut, and, and uh, came my, my turn, and my son says, you go first, Dad, I want to see what it looks like. And so uh, uh, I went first, and, uh, and uh, I noticed that the, uh, that the woman who was cutting my hair had this uh, kind of a religious symbol. My, my best guess was that it was uh, like an Egyptian religious symbol that was tattooed right on her neck. And she was just cutting my hair and, and asking. And, and uh, I just, I, I'm not an evangelist. I'm more of a pastor, teacher, trainer. Uh, that's been my, I think, my gifting. But yet, I love talking with people about their back, religious backgrounds if they want to talk. And so, there's something in my mind that's just been kind of helpful for me over the years. It's being salt. S-A-L-T. Say something. Ask a question. Listen. And then take it deeper. Simple. 
Okay, I'm, I'm not a great evangelist, but those are things that have gotten me into wonderful conversations. So I, I mentioned to her, hey, that's an interesting uh, symbol, interesting tat on your, uh, on your, on your throat. And, uh, and she said, oh, yeah, that's, uh, I'm not sure what that is, but I, I kind of like the symbol of it, and, and so I had it put on my neck. And so I asked a question, oh, how long have you been interested in spiritual things? Then I listened. And she went on to tell me the story of how she had grown up in a Christian home but had gone away because it just didn't mean much to her. Uh, and, uh, and I just listened. It was probably a couple minutes as she was cutting my hair. I was hoping she was doing a good job. But at that point, it didn't matter quite as much. She finished and then I took it deeper by asking her, so you're interested in, 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 in religion or in religious things, spiritual things, are you, would you have an interest in reading the Bible? And I waited and just listened again. And she was like, oh, you know what? I've, I've always wondered what was in the Bible. Growing up in, Christian, or in, a, in my Christian family, we just never read the Bible. But if I could get a chance to, to read with some other people, I'd love to do that. I wasn't even from this place. And yet I was thinking, wow, how do I connect her with a community? I said, you know, if you were to look on the internet, I bet you could find a, a church and emphasize that reads the Bible together. Uh, I said, I'm sure you could find some good fellowship there. People, the white, the harvest is white. I'm just telling you, Jesus is raising our points of view so that the people we often think are least interested may be very interested. When anyone, especially in Europe, and I, and I just ask a simple question about their, their interest in religion or, or spiritual things, and they respond positively, that for me is like, God is working in this guy's life. <laughs> I know he is. Because he wouldn't respond positively unless God was. The harvest is white. That's that perspective. Jesus goes on and he talks about a work of partnership as well. Not just a, a white harvest, but a work of partnership. Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me to accomplish his work. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life, so that the sower and the reaper may rejoice together. For here is a saying that holds true. One sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap for which you did not labor. Others have labored, and you have entered into their labor. Folks, Jesus' telescopic view of the harvest is that it's a work of partnership, that you are not alone in your harvesting work. Jesus' broader view sees the spreading influence, oops, uh, excuse me, God is, God is the primary partner who invites us into become his fellow workers. And God has not given us the gospel to share just as a message, but it's about a person. It's about a person that, that we've met who has changed our lives that we share with others, even in a culture who would consider CrossFit kind of on the same level of truth as Jesus would be. And yet, we've met a person who is definitely changed our lives. That's the gospel message about Jesus' death, resurrection, his desire to gift us eternal life and forgiveness of sin that changes, 
that not only gives us a different direction in the eternal realm, but gives us a different direction here on this earth. That's the good news that we have. It is a huge encouragement to me that I have partners in the gospel ministry. It's not only about us individually sharing the gospel, but, but how is it that we can do it better as a community? Um, within our mission, within uh, Reach Global, and I know within the EFCA as well, our desire as churches is to focus upon glorifying God by multiplying transformational churches among all people. The issue that I often run into with our missionaries is that we often put multiplication, we often put evangelism into a context is that it's about me. What do I need to do at work, at school? What do I need to do with my neighbors? And yet Jesus here is, is saying, hey, take a step back. It's not about you, it's about us doing this work. Sharing the gospel isn't so much about me as it is we and how do we do it together, uh, whether that's in, uh, in a community, whether that's by inviting people to a home where we're able to do it in great, uh, more so in community. Jesus also talks about a wide gospel influence, is that the gospel multiplies beyond our efforts. Look at this in, in verse 39. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him, in Jesus, because of the woman's testimony. When she said, he told me all that I ever did. And so when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them. And he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. And they said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe. For we have heard it for ourselves and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. Jesus' broader view of spreading the influence of the gospel, the multiplication of God's transformation, that's his telescopic view that says, look, it's way beyond your own efforts. The gospel spreads way beyond that. Um, Paposhek was a, was a young man who started a, a attending our, uh, our English camps when he was about 12 or 13 years old. Uh, his name was Martin, actually. Paposhik means parrot. All right? But we, since we had about five Martins at that English camp, uh, we said, hey, choose different names so that we can differentiate between the Martins. And he chose parrot, which I still don't know uh, why, and he doesn't either. Uh, 12 years old, Martin stayed with us through English camps, through English teaching, uh, weekly English teaching, um, Martin became a, a medic at some of those English camps. So when he was about 17 or 18 years old, uh, Martin chose to receive Christ, chose to be baptized. Uh, a long period of time in which Martin was hearing the gospel, was rubbing elbows with, uh, with fellow believers, uh, in which he had a, a Bible study with, with Bavel, our, our Czech pastor, uh, in which he was able to share with, uh, with his mother, with his sister. Uh, Martin finished high school and, and he said, hey, I want to use my talents and abilities of how God has, has given me and so I want to go into med school. Martin is now in his second or third year of, of med school in Prague. Uh, and uh, 
he's a pretty calm guy. He's not like this, this real extroverted uh, sort of person, but just calmly and, uh, and uh, very sincerely sharing his faith with other medical students, sharing his faith with, uh, with members of his family. Um, when we started investing or investing, when we started just meeting with this and trying to corral this young 12-year-old, we wondered, God, what are you going to do in this guy's life? Amazing, the gospel influence in this young man's life that has spread to so many other people and will continue spreading to so many people. Two views that we can take. Disciples' view it's natural. We walk down that path. It is like butter, oil, just slipping right down that path every week. And then there's a view where Jesus says, step back, take a look at the harvest as I see it. It's a wide harvest. It's a work of partnership. It's a wide gospel influence. Um, friends, this passage doesn't motivate me toward a frenetic, anxious, evangelistic activity, toward sharing the gospel with anyone that I come across. What this passage motivates me to do is to reset my point of view and to see what is really important for today, for this next week. It gives me a, a view reset that doesn't force me or, 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 or cause me to, to move into lots of activity, but rather... Lord Jesus, how do you see the people around me? It gives me a reset. Um, those three words or three commands that he has in verse 35 are so important. Wake up, lift up your eyes, see my harvest fields. My wife and I hadn't been in Chicago for very long. We're on a study break and uh, my daughter lives in South Chicago and uh, has our first grandchild. And so we were out kind of on a late afternoon, evening, and we were pushing our, our grandson around. And uh, uh, it started raining, and so we, we found this little shelter, and we, we jumped underneath the shelter. And by that time, it's getting kind of dark, and we're wondering, oh, when's the, the weather going to, uh, to let up? And uh, we saw across the park this, this man start walking towards us, Kind of had a hoodie on over him, and, and uh, he was trying to find a place to, to be out of the rain as well. And I'm thinking, I do not know who this guy is. And here I am with my wife, my grandson, South Chicago. How's this going to turn out? Okay, fear, anxiety. I'm kind of starting to put my body between him and my wife and my grandson. He walks in, he kind of stands on the edge of the shelter, and, and I'm thinking all this time, Lord, what do I do? Is he a homeless person? Does he want something? There was, there was real fear going on inside me. Um, and yet, it was, it was like God, it wasn't audible words, but it was like God saying, Rich, I've got your back. I'm protecting you. You don't need to protect yourself. Uh, and so uh, I just I called out to him and said, Hey, boy, glad you got out of the rain. <laughs> kind of. Uh, 
how are you doing? And uh, what's your name? Just started talking with him a little bit, found out his name, asked him a few, you know, the salt questions, say something, ask a question, listen, uh, take it a little bit deeper. Found out from Terrence that uh, uh, he was... He was, uh, he was having trouble living at home because his father wanted him to take this job. He didn't want to take this job, and so he was kind of living on the streets, but he wanted to get an apartment and get a job. And had a chance for my, my wife and I to just, to just pray for him, of what he was going through with his father, with his family, of trying to find a job. Uh, just the Lord just really reminding us again of... of the harvest is around you. I'm working already and entrust myself to you. That's my message that I want to leave with you today, folks. As you look today, Sunday, as you look the beginning of this week, as you look towards a new 2020, what is the harvest from Jesus' perspective? Go for that view. Take time to meditate, to spend time thinking about that. I'm going to ask for uh, Cabot to, to come up. We're going to move into a time of celebrating the Lord's Supper, uh, a time of uh, giving thanks for Christ's work on our behalf, a time of uh, uh, committing ourselves again and giving thanks for the grace that He's shown in our lives. So I will pray, and uh, I'll invite the, the worship team to come up as well. Our Father, we are, we are grateful that you have invited us into your harvest. I'm so grateful that you have rescued us, that you have given us a, a new life in your kingdom. Father, that you have called us your sons and daughters because of Jesus. We celebrate that. And Father, we also pray that you would be working uh, a work of transformation in our hearts to give us a view that's not so focused upon just the here and now and today, but would give us your perspective and your son's perspective. Thank you, Father, for, uh, for your desire, your willingness, how you use different events in our lives to, to cause us to see the world around us differently. Thank you for that in the name of Jesus. Amen.